Back to the book of Genesis, I invite you to turn with me this morning to Genesis chapter 30, and we'll pick up there where we left off last time at verse 25. Genesis 30, verse 25, please. But before we go to the word, let us first address ourselves to the Lord for his blessing upon it. Our Father, we pray that as you are present here, as we've already prayed and acknowledged and know, we pray that thou wilt also open your word to us, that we will hear thy voice speaking to us in it. We pray for your spirit to speak to us and apply it to our hearts and lives that we may be conformed to your word and that truly it may be a biographical of us in all the ways that your word is to form and shape and direct us. From our hearts outward, we pray for your spirit to work. In Jesus' name, amen. Genesis chapter 30, we begin at verse 25. As soon as Rachel had born Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, Send me away, that I may go to my own home and country. Give me my wives and my children, for whom I have served you, that I may go, for you know the service that I have given you. Now, by way of background, uh, there are those here today who have not been with us for the past couple of weeks, so I'll say that we're coming in this history to the end of a period of 14 years of labor. 14 years of labor that Jacob has given in order to secure in exchange for his wives, Rachel and Leah. Now they are his cousins, so his labor has been for his uncle, Laban. Dear, sweet uncle Laban. He's treated Jacob more as a slave than as a nephew. Anyway, now that Rachel, Jacob's favorite wife, uh, the one for whom he had worked the first seven years but ended up laboring another seven years for because Uncle Laban had tricked him in switching the daughters on the wedding day and giving him Leah instead of Rachel. I say, now that Rachel has given birth to a son, Jacob uh, is ready to go home. His heart is turned back to the promised land. It's more than hope, homesickness, of course, as I've just implied. It is the faith that knows that Canaan is indeed his home, his God-given home, the promised land. And that drives Jacob, as indicated by his own speech. What is more, he is trusting in God, who has kept all of the promises he made to him in Bethel to this point, now also to fulfill his promise to bring him back. It's also worthy of note, by the way, that Jacob asks for his wives and his children. Whether the law of Exodus 21 applied uh, precisely back in Jacob's day or not, according to that law, a slave was required to leave his wives and children behind after service had been completed to his master. If he wanted to keep his wives and children, he had to remain a slave. So it may be that Jacob here is asking Laban to uh, treat him a little differently than the typical master-slave relationship. But at any rate, Laban seems to look on Jacob more as a slave than as a nephew, let alone a son-in-law. And Jacob seems to view the relationship the same way, judging from the language he has used of servitude. But verse 27, Laban said to him, 
If I have found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages, and I will give it. Now, Laban's offer seems to us a, a magnanimous one at first. But uh, judging from what you already know about Laban, you may be suspicious, and if so, you will be exactly right. For one thing, we find out later that Laban has changed Jacob's wages 10 times. But what is more, this Laban is here now at his greasy best, using an ancient Near East tactic in his conversation. This is basically a rejection of Jacob's request, a nice way to say, I'm not going to give you one red shekel, but stated in such a way as to, as we say, butter him up. The last thing Jacob wants, uh, Laban wants rather, is for Jacob to leave. He can see, and he says here, he's seen by divination even, that he has been richly blessed by Jacob's presence and work. An early fulfillment, by the way, of the promises you remember that God had made to Abraham, that through his offspring all the nations would be blessed. Well, Jacob recognizes it for what it is and rightly objects, but courteously, and presses for more than permission to leave empty-handed. Verse 29, Jacob said to him, You yourself know how I have served you and how your livestock has fared with me, for you had little before I came. And it has increased abundantly. And the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. But now, when shall I provide for my own household also? He said, what shall I give you? Well, Jacob knows that Laban doesn't intend to give him anything. So Jacob makes this proposal, sort of pulls it out of his hat, although it seems, and we suspect that he had it up his sleeve all the time, just in case. It's far too developed a scheme to be merely impromptu. And here is where we get to watch and sort of grin and laugh to ourselves as we see the master of salesmanship sell Laban an offer he can't possibly resist. Jacob said, you shall not give me anything if you will do this for me. I will again pasture your flock and keep it. Let me pass through your flock today, removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep and every black lamb and the spotted and speckled among the goats, they shall be my wages. So my honesty will answer for me when you come to look into my wages with you. Everyone that is not speckled or spotted among the goats and black among the lambs, if found with me, shall be counted stolen. And you tell me, what is Laban thinking right now? He's thinking one or maybe both of two things. For one, he's saying to himself, this son-in-law of mine is even dumber than I thought. And then he thinks, this is a deal I can't pass up. I can't lose. You see, sheep are normally, and by and large, in the vast majority, white. 
and goats are normally black or dark brown. Black sheep and multicolored or speckled animals of both kinds, sheep or goats, are much rarer. And what Jacob has proposed is that his wage should be just that tiny, rare group of speckled animals and the black sheep. While Laban can keep the much more numerous white sheep and black goats. And to sweeten the deal, Jacob offers to take the speckled animals and the dark sheep out of the flock that he tends, that Jacob tends. Now for Laban, this whole thing is a no-brainer. Only he doesn't trust Jacob to do the sorting. No one is more suspicious of a cheat than a cheat. So Laban sorts them himself, takes what he thinks are any potential parents of the speckled animals far away from Jacob. In verse 34, Laban says, Good, let it be as you have said. But that day Laban removed the male goats that were striped and spotted and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, every one that had white on it and every lamb that was black and put them in charge of his sons. And he set a three days journey between himself and Jacob pastured, the, uh, between himself and Jacob and Jacob pastured the rest of Laban's flock. Now Laban is a three day journey away and he's rubbing his hands and he's twisting his mustache like snidely whiplash and saying to himself, what a sucker. But how could Laban have anticipated this? Verse 37, then Jacob took fresh sticks of poplar and almond and plane trees and peeled white streaks in them, exposing the white of the sticks. He set the sticks that he had peeled in front of the flocks in the troughs, that is the watering places, where the flocks came to drink. And since they bred when they came to drink, the flocks bred in front of the sticks, and so the flocks brought forth... <laughs> I see on our resident farmer's face a sneer of interest. And so they brought forth striped and speckled and spotted. And Jacob separated the lambs and set the faces of the flocks toward the striped and all the black in front of Laban. And he put his own droves apart, in front of the flock of Laban, rather. And he put his own droves apart and did not put them with Laban's flock. Whenever the stronger of the flock were breeding, Jacob would lay the sticks in the troughs before the eyes of the flock that they might breed among the sticks. But for the feebler of the flock, he would not lay them there. So the feebler would be Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. Thus, the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants and camels and donkeys. You get what Jacob has done here on the theory that what animals see during their mating affects their offspring. Jacob puts multicolored sticks in front of the breeding animals so that the dark goats and the plain white sheep give birth to speckled and spotted kids and sheep. But to take it a step further, he only puts the sticks there when the strong ones are breeding, and when the weak ones are breeding, he takes them away. 
so that over the course of these years, and it is going to be years, Jacob ends up with a flock full of strong, healthy, spotted animals for himself and some sickly animals left over for Laban. Well, word gets to Jacob's in-laws, I almost call them outlaws, chapter 31. Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's, and from what was our father's he has gained all this wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Jacob is starting to come to understand now, of course, that he is persona non grata with his father-in-law and with his brothers-in-law and probably begins to think this might be a good time to go home. And in his perfect timing, verse 3, the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred and I will be with you. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was and said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that I have served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages 10 times, but God did not permit him to harm me. If he said, the spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock bore spotted. And if he said the striped shall be your wages, then all the flock bore striped. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. In the breeding season, the flock I lifted up, in the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream that the goats that mated with the flock were striped, spotted, and mottled. Then the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. He said, lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled. For I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. Now, Jacob has laid out his case before his wives in the field, of course, out where they could discuss it privately without eavesdropping. And in an, an extraordinarily long speech, as the scripture's record goes, we get to see a side of Jacob that has not been so clear to us before. Here we see Jacob as a man of faith and believer in God. Well, would his wives agree to go with him? He had to wonder, but their eyes had seen too, and they had feelings too, and they could see what their father had done to their husband, and they could feel how their father had made them to feel, how he had treated them. Then Rachel, verse 14, and Leah answered and said to him, is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us and he has indeed devoured our money. All the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do. 
So Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels. He drove away all his livestock, all his property that he had gained, the livestock in his possession that he had acquired in Paddan Aram, to go to the land of Canaan, his father Isaac. Laban had gone uh, to shear his sheep, and Rachel stole her father's household goods. Uh, gods. Rachel stole her father's household gods. And Jacob tricked Laban the Aramean by not telling him that he intended to flee. He fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. Now Laban has set himself up for this, hasn't he? By separating himself three days' journey for Jacob, from Jacob, he's given Jacob opportunity to do his selective breeding and his little stunt with the uh, sticks. And he's given him a full three days' journey ahead, a head start. He thought to outwit Jacob, but in fact, as the Proverbs say, he fell into his own pit. When it was told Laban on the third day, verse 22 now, when it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. But God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream by night and said to him, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. heard it said perhaps that history repeats itself. That is roughly the same with redemptive history as well, in particular the history of God's covenant dealings with his people. It had not escaped the view of Bible scholars that what we see here in Jacob is a pattern that is repeated both in the past in scripture and later in the future. No doubt as this history was read for the first time after having been written to the people of God, the, the descendants of this very Jacob in the wilderness, some 500 years later, they understood this pattern. And it was for them like a case of deja vu. Let me explain. Jacob is here leaving a place and looking back, it is roughly the same place from which his grandfather, Abraham, left. Paddan Aram, it is called in Jacob's day, of the district of Haran, from which Abraham had set out, you remember, for the promised land. He's going to now virtually retrace the steps of Abraham back to the land of promise, and the circumstances of this whole thing are amazingly similar to those of Abraham. Then looking in the other direction, looking forward in redemptive history, looking ahead to the people who bear Jacob's name, Israel, they will also find themselves pilgrims on the way to the promised land, having come similarly out of bondage, out of slavery in the land of Egypt, in their case, under amazingly parallel circumstances with those of their fathers, Jacob, and Abraham. But, and here's, here's the point, the pattern continues down to this very day. 
You and I, brothers and sisters, in surveying this history are also to find ourselves in the same pattern. In the events of Abraham's pilgrimage, of Jacob's, and of the people of Israel, Scripture itself teaches us to find ourselves on pilgrimage and to think of ourselves this way and to measure our lives this way. Take a look at this. First, there is the divine calling. Like Abraham before him, like Moses and the people of God after him, Jacob receives the calling of God to go to the promised land. And it is a calling that's matched with a promise there in verse 3, I will be with you. Now you too, brothers and sisters, have heard the same calling from the same God. God himself has called you, Christians, to strive, says the scripture, to enter that rest. Not the rest of Canaan, but the rest of heaven, of which Canaan, says the scripture, is but a picture, a foreshadowing. Just as surely as Abraham and Jacob and the people of Israel were, so you and I are under a divine summons to go the way of the pilgrim, to go on pilgrimage, to set our eyes on the promised land and to strive and to see that there is not a day of our lives but that we have taken another step or at least several steps toward the promised land, toward the rest before us. Second, God has by his miraculous intervention made it possible for us to go on pilgrimage in the first place. We wonder sometimes, we scratch our heads at this, this whole thing with Jacob stripping some sticks and putting them before the breeding animals. Perhaps it was Jacob depending on some magic, sort of like Rachel on the mandrakes to have a baby as we saw last week. But it was God's good pleasure to make it happen. And later on, did you notice when Jacob describes the situation to his wife and the dream that he had describes it to his wives, we don't hear anything about sticks and bark. We hear about God and what he has done and how he has intervened to bring speckled sheep um, and solid, from solid white ones and mottled goats from black ones until Jacob has grown rich and plundered Laban. That's important. That is the same word used in 3116, translated taken away, that is used to describe the way the Israelites miraculously plundered the Egyptians before they went on their pilgrimage. The same Egyptians, by the way, from whom Abraham came, a richer a very rich man on his way back to Canaan. Even so, God has blessed you from the start of your pilgrimage miraculously with a new heart, a heart of flesh in the place of your heart of stone with which you and I were all conceived in our mother's wombs. And then from day to day, he continues to bless his own people, even us, on our pilgrimage, often, often using the wealth of the wicked to speed us on our way. 
And then third, at the same time, there is this resistance of our enemies with which we meet on pilgrimage. Whether his name is Laban the Aramean, who chases Jacob, or Pharaoh, who chases the uh, Israelites to the Red Sea, or the persecutors of God's people today in modern governments, even workplaces, even biological families. Still, we have our enemies who meet us today in the way of pilgrimage. And yet, as in the case of Laban, even the dreams, even the thoughts of our enemies are under God's immediate direct control. So our enemies today, like the enemies of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, whoever they may be, can neither do any more nor less than what God has declared and deigned that they will do. Even the wicked are in his hands, no matter their names, no matter their status. And what is more, in all of this and through all of this, our pilgrimage, we have the same consummate blessing as our pilgrim fathers and mothers enjoyed. Fourth, we have God's promise of his own presence and his own attendant protection. The blessing that he gave Abraham of his own presence and blessing, he gave also to Isaac saying, I will be with you. And to Jacob, he says it verbatim again, I will be with you. And to Israel, he says the same to Moses, my presence will go with you. And to you, he says the very same thing. And lo, I am with you always to the very end of the age. And we could go on and on this morning to notice the parallels here between Jacob's, for instance, presence and blessing on Laban and Israel's presence in Egypt and the attendant blessing and prospering of Egypt because of their labors there. Between Pharaoh's cloaked offers to let them go and worship and Laban's insincere offers to Jacob. Between Jacob's teeming with livestock and servants and Israel's teeming in Egypt, the only two places in the Bible, by the way, where that Hebrew word is used. Between Laban's pursuit and Pharaoh's pursuit, and in our own case, Satan's pursuit. But if only in those four simple ways that I mentioned, the divine calling, the miraculous intervention, the resistance of our enemies, the divine promise of presence and protection of our covenant-keeping God, we certainly see in the pilgrimage of our spiritual mothers and fathers, our own pilgrimage as well. And in so doing, we must needs learn to mark and to measure our own lives accordingly as pilgrimage, as pilgrims on pilgrimage from the bondage of our sin to the glories of the new heaven and new earth. For only in understanding this and seeing ourselves this way can we live the way God has called us to live and weigh this world the way God has told us to weigh it, to treasure the things that belong to heaven, as our Lord teaches, 
and to learn to throw off everything that hinders us or threatens to distract us from our pilgrimage on earth. It was only after examining several different hymns this week on pilgrimage that I settled on the one we're going to be using during communion by Horatius Bonar in a few moments. But there is one to which I was drawn back several times this week as almost by a magnet. And so with it, I'll conclude. It comes from John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. And while there is a version of it in our modern hymn books, nothing can take the place of the words as they live on the lips of the immortal, valiant for truth. Now may they be biographical of every one of our lives. Who would true valor see? Let him come hither. One here will constant be come wind, come weather. There's no discouragement. Shall make him once relent his first avowed intent to be a pilgrim. Whoso beset him round with dismal stories do but themselves confound. His strength the more is. No lion can him fright. He'll with a giant fight, but he will have a right to be a pilgrim. Hobgoblin nor foul fiend can daunt his spirit. He knows he at the end shall life inherit. Then fancies fly away. He'll fear not what men say. He'll labor night and day to be a pilgrim. Amen.